from the eyes of a civil rights attorney to the ears of the people in pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness in the postmodern age of relative truths, reality, and information. This is a Land of Lincoln Lawyer podcast. Language mightier than the sword, more powerful than the pen, and the keystone to the future. Part 1. In 2006, a movie came out in follow-up to the Matrix trilogy. It was called The V for Vendetta. The story unfolds in a dystopic future United Kingdom, which is ruled by a totalitarian regime that came to power through the invocation of emergency powers in response to a viral outbreak. I will pause there. Does that sound a little familiar to you? The viral outbreak was actually caused in the movie by the very party members that ultimately seized control of the government, government that ruled with an iron fist that was so heavy that Stalin himself would blush in envy. In the movie, a masked vigilante named V wages war against the government in order to restore freedom to his fellow citizens, utilizing symbolism and language as his primary weapons. And so that's key here. He uses language and symbols, language as his primary weapons to initiate the revolution. In the opening scene, in one of the opening scenes, V hijacks the state-run media. The government is able to televise in every single household all the programming they, that they would ever want to. V's able to hijack this system. And in his address to the nation, he makes a statement. He makes many statements, but he makes he makes a statement. He did, After he kind of outlines the history and gets people thinking and asking questions in their own minds, he says, while the truncheon may be used in lieu of conversation, words will always retain their power. Words offer the means to meaning, and for those who will listen, the enunciation of truth. Spoiler alert, I don't want you to, uh, if you haven't seen V for Vendetta, it's a great movie. You need to go watch it. It's got all the action sequences you could ever want to see. It's got the awesome dialogue, the tension, and the suspense. But here, I'm going to tell you, I'm, I'm going to have to unfortunately tell you what happened in the movie for purposes of this dialogue. V wins, okay? V wins because with his words, with his symbols, he's able to capture the hearts and minds of his people to get them to understand that they're not living as good citizens in a free and open society. They're living under totalitarianism and something's wrong and something happened that they need to address in order to preserve the future for themselves and for their future generations. So V wins. The problem here is, what, what I want to discuss is, what, what if V had it wrong? What if the regime was so absolute in its power over the hearts and minds of men and women that they captured the very essence of reality itself by controlling the meaning of the words that V relies on in, to free his people? Words don't have a uniform commonality of meaning. How can that be used as a weapon to wake people up to what it is that they're dealing with? In the movie, obviously the premise fails. If the words don't carry the meaning that is uniform across the board to all the citizens, then V is completely ineffectual. He's completely disarmed. So that's what I'd like to dis- to explore in the context of the transgender movement. Yes, we're going there. It is Pride Month after all. It's June 2022. So without further ado, let's get into it. So language is a foundation for our reality. It's a fact. And we want to look at this, as, as I alluded to, through the prism of the topic of the day and of the month. What is a woman? 
There was, this was after Matt Walsh's documentary came out. I, I saw it. It was very interesting to say the least. Local Distance is a content provider on Twitter had this long thread that discussed this question, what is a woman, in using it and looking at it through the, through the lens of language as, again, the foundation of our reality, how to actually deconstruct this question and analyze it from the perspective that is being offered by those who are kind of shifting the traditional definitions. So though there are those who would argue that there are no clear definitions of what a woman truly is. They say it can be many things. A woman is whoever identifies as a woman. Women can have beards. They can have male appendages. They can be masculine. They can have giant pectoral muscles, and they can lift hundreds and hundreds of pounds. It doesn't matter. It's whoever identifies as a woman. And the reason why they say this is because they, they say gender becomes a social construct. Well, okay, what's a social construct? They kind of exist everywhere. They're really just intangible shared experiences of a society that are the basis for communications. Examples, traditions, fashion norms, familial roles, law, economics, value systems. But now social constructs, as I said, according to the last segments of our population, includes things we traditionally have conceptualized as tangible, such as gender. So this shifting of the definitions inevitably leads to confusion because blurred lines in previously universally accepted understandings of that construct become redefined. The reason why this leads to confusion is because human beings have an inherent ability, and this is this is how we were able to kind of live in our own existence, to categorize things. We break things up. We draw lines in our world in order to organize it so we understand our own reality and how we fit in it. But but let me clarify, it's not our own reality or our own truth, you know, like it's my truth, this is my truth. It's actual, objectively verifiable reality, and we use names, labels, descriptions, and other linguistic tools to do this. A set of universal rules, if you will, governing our own existence and our place in the world that we all agree upon. Helps us adjudicate disputes, communicate plans for the weekend. It controls interactions with others. And it's, it's, it's how we conceptualize our own existence. So let's look at a few examples, a simple one. What is a forest? As a child, the concept of a forest is, is internalized and understood after you, you break down the different segments of what a forest is. So let's look at a tree. A tree is going to have a trunk. It's going to have some bark. If you look up, it's going to start having some branches. It's going to have some leaves. In the forest, you may see a tree next to that tree that you've analyzed. It might be slightly smaller. It might be bigger. It might be a different shape or size. And in the forest, there's going to be foliage on the ground. There's going to be bushes. There's going to be dead leaves on the ground. There's going to be different terrain. But when you, ta- when you take all these, these organisms and you lump them together, you're able to conceptualize in your mind, this is a forest. It consists of all these different things. What about books? We categorize these things based on author, color, fiction, nonfiction, different types of history. So we break down reality into these categories at different levels to have a common understanding of reality itself. But what if the categories are not objective? What if we made categories based on our own interests, like what subjectively matters to the individual? So for books, what if we categorize books? Okay, say, what if I had my own bookstore? I don't think I would ever have a bookstore, but let's pretend I have one. We categorize based on what we personally believe to be the funniest. We categorize the books based on what we personally believe, what I personally believe to be the scariest. What about the wokest? Is there subjective interpretation of scariest, funniest, or most woke an objective standard we can all work from, or would it result in chaos? 
certainly I could leave a treatise. Hey, if you want to understand how to locate books here, you need to refer to this to this treatise to look at the scale of wokeness that I've assigned to these various publications and books that we have here. Okay, maybe that works. You, you see the ridiculousness in it because it's not a set standard that we can all subscribe to. So we describe physical world categorizations. So let's shift to societal categorizations. If society is categorized according to our own subjective preference, then we can categorize however we want. So terms like man and woman are socially constructed concepts that become malleable because to accept the words, this is the argument, as they are commonly understood, is to accept a patriarchal categorization designed to divide society exactly how the dominant group, straight white men, want society to be. It's the oppressor-oppressed dichotomy. So categorizing someone into a group they do not wish to be in constitutes an act of oppression that can then morally be met with a set of increasingly hostile words and actions to push back against the oppressors. There's a powerful reductionist impulse, I think, in humans looking to find a single principle that will explain everything that has infected and that ails our society. And this oppressor-oppressed paradigm in the context of gender identity is a prime example of it. And we're going to discuss oppressor-oppressed concepts in more detail in a future episode when it comes to education. But let's break this down when it comes to the definitions, because we're, we're talking about the concepts of categorization and how we use language to understand our own reality. So let's, let's talk about the def- definition specifically of gender. According to gender theorists, defining what a woman is is a futile exercise. I mean, they, they argue that two primary points. A woman is anyone who identifies as a woman. And the second one is you can't define a woman based on traditional biological factors because there are outliers on the spectrum. So let's look at the first one. A woman is anyone who identifies as a woman. It's a circular definition, don't you think? Just think about it. A woman is anyone who identifies as a woman. Well, to know what a woman is, you need According to that definition, you need to be able to define the actual word. You're using the same word that you're trying to define, and it assumes that you already know what a woman is, which we all do primarily. So any criteria can be used to qualify, but this is the issue. Any criteria can then be used to qualify oneself as a woman. So you have your traditional physiological characteristics, uterus, XX chromosomes, breasts, egg production, menstrual cycles, but then you also have social factors. So the, the way one dresses, makeup, hair, tanning, the way one feels. But this is this is where it gets dangerous. Those are technically kind of arbitrary. But let's let's talk about something a little bit more arbitrary. What if you drank a vanilla latte, or you're left-handed, or you got out of bed at six a.m.? What if that's the criteria that an individual decides is what needs to be met to determine whether or not their identity is that of a woman? So it'll play out like this. So I could pronounce that I identify as a woman because I drink a vanilla latte or because I'm left-handed or because I got out of bed before 6 a.m. that day. Because my self-identity and self-qualified criteria as a woman are met, who could argue otherwise? Because there are no set of universal definitions. A woman is a woman is a woman is a woman. It's whatever it is that I say it is. I'm wearing a blue shirt today. I'm a woman. It doesn't quite make sense, and I don't know that it's supposed to. So then let's talk about the, the other the other thing. This one's a little bit more difficult. You know, we talked about the circular definition of where a woman is whoever says they're a woman. The biological question. So we discussed traditional physiological factors, or I mentioned it, but to reiterate, things like the XX chromosomes, breasts, eggs, uterus, the ability to give birth. Are there women who do not have some or even most of these physiological characteristics? Are there borderline cases on the spectrum? And so the argument goes, well, that means we can't define what a woman is based on physiology. 
since there are exceptions, variations, and anomalies or outliers on a spectrum that the traditional definition cannot possibly account for. So before I'm able to deconstruct this, I have to transition. Okay, we, we need to talk about fallacies real quick. A fallacy. A fallacy is an argument based on false inference. It's based on a false inference. Okay, a prime example of this is the fallacy of authority. And the poster child for this is Dr. Fauci. This is going to be where everyone, if you get in, if you've gotten into an argument with somebody about COVID mitigation protocols and you provide to them information about recent case studies or historical case studies regarding the effectiveness of social distancing or masking or vaccine efficacy, the inevitable response to someone who is not terribly concerned about looking into those that information will say, well, Dr. Fauci, who's the pre- preeminent national expert in infectious disease, says that th- these are things that need to be done in order to save lives. And if you don't do what Dr. Fauci says, it doesn't matter what other information you have, you are going to kill my grandma. That's the argument of fallacy of authority. It doesn't matter what the person says. It doesn't matter if it can be impeached. It doesn't matter if that person has no credibility, but the fact that they hold an authority position is the only reason why whatever it is they say carries any weight. And so that those arguments are really frustrating to get into, but that's the fallacy of authority. So let's talk about the fallacy of the beard. Yeah, beard, you know, like facial hair. Is one hair a beard? Two, three, 10, 50, 100, 300? Where do you draw the line? It's kind of hard to do that. Okay, you can't. I don't, I, I don't know. Some people might say that, I have a beard. Some people might laugh at me and say, I don't have a beard. It kind of depends on the day. I don't know. I think it probably looks better when it's when, when it's a little bit more uh, closer to the face. And I try to grow it out. It really doesn't work out too well. Um, anyways, that you can't identify a specific threshold number does not mean there is no difference between having a beard and not having one. I think we all can picture in our mind's eye what a beard really looks like. There are good beards. There are bad beards. This fallacy banks on one accepting the fact that there are unclear cases is not only evidence but unassailable truth that there are no clear lines. Or as author John Searle said, unless a distinction can be made rigorous and precise with no marginal cases, it is not a distinction at all. We have different backgrounds, life experiences, abilities, specific language experiences. Some of us may, may English might be our second language uh, or third language. And these are all utilized and drawn from whenever we engage in communication. And we have different different utilizations of different words and phrases. It means it's impossible to have clear, distinct lines all the time. My wife grew up in Bridgeport, right around Comiskey Park. I grew up in Central Lake County. And there are often times, and, and, my, and my wife, probably her first language is Sicilian. There's all, There are always instances in which I may use a word or phrase that she doesn't quite grasp because of, you know, the fact that we grew up in different geographical locations, not terribly far away, uh, rel- you know, relatively speaking, when we're looking at the, the, the world as a whole, but still it's there. So again, it means that we have no clear, distinct lines all the time. In other, in other words, there will always be marginal cases somewhere. So you can apply this fallacy of the beard to other things too. The things you might think don't have any ambiguity, but someone else might. So one example I thought of is a boat. You know, what is a boat? Uh, does it have to hold somebody? Does, does it have to have sails? Can it be self, self-propelled? Um, does it have to run on gas? Does it have to run on solar power? How many people does it have to hold? Uh, does it have to be made of wood? 
How, how, again, how big can it be? Is a canoe a boat? Is, is a plastic canoe a boat? Is a, is a kayak a boat? Is a one foot replica of a sailboat that would otherwise be used to play with as a child, is that a boat or is that a toy? And so you could probably make an argument that all those are boats and you probably make an argument that some are not and some are. This vocal, uh, vocal um, distance uh, used this analogy in, in, in his in his Twitter thread, and he said, "A car. Look at look, look at a car. I mean, you could really do this with anything, but let's 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 use the one he used. Car. If you start removing atoms from a car, you know molecules. At what point does that does that car cease to be a car any longer? I I, I think there's going to be a point in time where you could probably say that's that's not a car. It's pieces of a car, and because they're not put together, that's not a car." You could do the same argument with a baby, and this is a hot button topic, especially with the, um, you know, all the all the discussions about Roe versus Wade recently, uh, viability of a fetus outside or inside the womb. It makes it difficult to draw the line, and so if it's difficult to draw the line, there's no clear definition, and so you see these these borderline examples prove that we do not know where the lines are. That's 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 the argument. We don't know where the lines are. So you can't possibly define a woman based on biological characteristics. Well, I mean, how do you respond to that? I guess there's people on wide ends of the spectrum. Um, and here's how here, here's the counterpoint to that. The reason you can think of cases that fall on the edge of the spectrum or blur the lines is because they is because you know exactly where the line is. You know what a, you know what a woman is. Edge cases can only be cited because the edge is clear enough for you to find it. Meaning those who argue there is a spectrum know clearly what is meant by the word woman. So what is a woman? What, what is a traditional, reasonable, objective, verifiable definition of what a woman is? Let's go with this one. As evolutionary biologist Heather Haying says, women are adult human females who do, did, will, or would, but for developmental or genetic anomalies, produce eggs. And so I think that's pretty clear. So society has been impacted tremendously by gender transition philosophy, and it's become statistically more prevalent today than it ever has been in the past. But whether that's organic or not is probably up for debate, but let's suffice it to say that there are definitely influencing factors that are playing a role. The trans movement has become trendy, uh, particularly for young children and young adults in an age group of malcontents. Think about when you were a child and you were trying to fit in with your peers. You're trying to find your place in the world. You're not comfortable in your own skin. You're, you're growing. You're going through these weird transitions physiologically with your hormones and you're, you're, you're turning into an adult and you, you want to be liked. You want to be adored. You want to be cheered and lauded. This is the most impressionable who am I period of one's life experience. And our young people more than any time in human history are influenced by sources outside of the household, accessible at the fingertips, no less. Social media, pop culture, mainstream media, Netflix, Hulu, all these may be contributing to the drastic increase in numbers of people deciding to transition. According to one recent UCLA study, Gender transition has nearly doubled since 2016, coupled with a recent Heritage Foundation study where it was discovered that access to gender-affirming interventions has inf- has resulted in a 14% increase in adolescent suicide. No one's saying trans people can't exist, but there's 
a sociological phenomenon going here that going on here that just needs to be addressed and needs to be discussed. And when we look at all this, the image of a long, dark winter begins to take form before our eyes. The view gets much darker, however, when the die cast from language deconstruction appears on that canvas. If there's no longer a common set of not only principles, but at the most rudimentary level, words, which we cannot for the most part agree on, what inevitably comes next is conflict. Conflict between states, counties, communities, teachers and students, neighbors, work colleagues, brother and sister, conflict between husband and wife, conflict between mother and daughter, and conflict between father and son. When there is no clear line in the sand, no clear meaning with our words, intentions, or our realities, we are invariably reduced to pawns on a chessboard. And the only factor left that matters above all else, because logic and reason and love, they all fall by the wayside. The only factor that matters at that point is power. But it's not a power that is truly wielded by the pawns themselves. Rather, under the auspices of an autocratic elite, sowing the wintry winds of discord to consolidate more power for themselves. A power so raw that it captures the very concept of reality itself and so undeniable that even V's foundational maxim is rendered powerless. To refresh your memory, the V for Vendetta, V's entire revolution is premised on the principle that words will always retain their power and that words offer the means to meaning and for those who will listen, the enunciation of truth. If words have no true meaning, there is no truth. There is no guiding principles except those bestowed upon us by the ruling class. The result is that the rule of law disintegrates into the ether. And if we are divided, we are easily conquered by those seeking to divide us. If we are united and willing to honor the right of freedom of expression and the right of self-determination, while we strive to become comfortable with who we are as individuals rather than how we fit into the crowd, and we are untethered by each other's views and threatened by those expressions we can once again find meaning in life in alignment with natural rights. And this is the point in time, as author Matthias Desmond puts it, in which the winter of totalitarianism gives way to the spring of life. So it's a heavy topic. They all are. Um, we're going through unprecedented times right now. And in part two, we're going to talk about language, gender, identity, and sex, but we're going to do this through, not through a, the, the, a lens of the framework of language deconstruction. We're going to do it through the lens of law, a legal analysis. And specifically, we're going to talk about in the context of female sports. Okay. I want nobody to mistake this podcast to be anything other than a discussion on language. And I want nobody to expect that the subsequent discussion is going to be anything other than a discussion on the rights of individuals in the current legal landscape. Okay. In other words, trans people do have rights. You cannot discriminate against a trans person. But what we need to analyze is the critical balance of fairness and inclusion in the rights of individuals. And given the current landscape, and given some very intriguing testimony provided by the incoming Supreme Court justice, in response to a, to, to a black and white question of, can you define what a woman is? The response being, no, I'm not a biologist. Well, let's just say this. 
that offers some interesting opportunities and debates when it comes to adjudicating this dispute in the legal system moving forward. From the eyes of a civil rights attorney to the ears of the people, this is Rob Tomei signing off.